Wherever you are in the world, thank you for tuning in to this episode of The Badminton Podcast, a community for badminton players by badminton players proudly brought to you by Valan. We talk all things badminton and aim to inspire you to be better in your game and in life by celebrating the people and stories of our global badminton community, whether they be past or present professional players, social players, officials or fans. We're your hosts, Jeff and Henry, and we love badminton. From the bottom of our hearts, we'd just like to say thank you to everyone who has listened to, shared and been part of the podcast. It wouldn't be possible without you all. If you do enjoy our episodes and can spare just a couple of dollars each month, you can really help keep the podcast going by supporting us on Patreon. Just visit www.patreon.com slash Podcast. We'll leave the link in the description. As people who love badminton, we all know that it's not just about the sport itself. It's about the connections you make and the things that it teaches you as a person that you're able to bring to all of the other parts of your life. That's why we want to introduce you to the book Mirror of Magico, written by Al Liao, a former Taiwanese national badminton player who is as passionate about badminton as us. For those who love Harry Potter, you want to give this one a read because Al has authored a fantasy story where three different characters with varying personalities go on a journey of adventure and learning. And they realize that things don't just happen to you, they happen because of you. And by being yourself and spending time in your dreams, you can conquer the evils and be the best version of yourself. So make sure you check it out. Mirror of Magico, written by Ao Liao. You can find it in all leading bookstores and we'll leave the link in the podcast description. All right, today we have Elias Braque, hopefully I pronounced that correctly, from Belgium, a 23-year-old whose goal is to be the one to make badminton a popular, famous sport in Belgium. He has had multiple third place finishes at Future Series, a final at an international series, and has been able to beat several top 100 players in his career so far. He is a hard worker and apparently really stubborn once he sets his goals. And lastly, someone who enjoys making new friends on the international circuit. We do hope that he achieves his goal of bringing badminton into the prime time for Belgium, because that'd be great for the sport all over the world. The biggest shock was maybe for me was the differences in culture. You start to appreciate much more things in life when you have traveled around the world, especially my first time when I went to Africa. When I came back home, I was like so grateful for the things that I have or the way that we are living here. Or when I'm talking to other players and maybe they don't get so much support, then you come back home, you're thinking, okay, we have got a great life here. So it's more about being grateful as well, because when you talk to the other players, there's so many players who have it more difficult than you. So on the days where you're complaining, you have to think back, yeah, okay, but these players have it this way, these players have it this way. So stop complaining, start working. So welcome onto the show, Elias. 
Thank you very much. And thank you for the great introduction. So Elias, it's really nice to talk to you today. I guess from all the way over here from Australia, usually when we talk about Belgium, the first thing we think about is chocolate. That's me anyway, Belgium chocolates usually. So I think beer, but maybe that's just the alcoholic. Oh yeah, Belgium beer as well. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. True, true, true. Okay. So, so if you were going to rate which one is better in Belgium compared to other countries, would you say the Belgium chocolate is better than other countries or Belgium beer? Well, as an athlete, I'm sort of not allowed to say the beers, I think. (laughs) (laughs) So I will keep it at the chocolate and the French fries because it's actually Belgium. Ah, actually, I've heard that. I've heard that the French didn't actually invent French fries. No, is that no. correct? It's actually coming from Belgium. Is that some kind of like controversial thing? Like, do the French tell you that they they invented the French fries and then? Oh no, not at all. But I feel like it's more outside of Europe where they think it's coming from France. I feel like in Europe, most of everybody knows that it's coming from Belgium. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, all the podcast listeners know now that every time you go to McDonald's and you get your French fries then it's from Belgium. So <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Okay. Let's get into the badminton part of things, Elias, because that's what we're about at the badminton podcast. We always love to explore the different stories and how people get involved in the sport, because we know that's a sport that brings so many people together, right? You've been on the international circuit. You meet so many different people from so many walks of life, from so many nationalities and cultures. So we'd love to hear how you, Elias from Belgium started badminton. And how did you get to where you are right now? Uh, well, I started quite early at the age of around six or seven years old. Would just go to the hall because of my oldest brother. He was playing badminton around two times a week. And I would just start hitting in the hall by myself or hitting against the wall. And the coach came up to my parents and said, look, he can already do like most of the stuff that kids of an older age can do. Why don't you let him join the practice? So it started out by one or two times a week where I could just walk to the hall since it's so short to my home. But like really fast, it went to like seven days a week. (laughs) So like every day I was just playing, not really practicing. It was not really something serious, but I would just play every day and just have fun. And then uh, later on there came to like, they asked me for national team in the youth. Then I would go to a sports school during six years where we'd practice two times a day. So the older I got, the more serious it became. And the more I started thinking of a future in badminton instead of just being my hobby, which I still think it is sometimes. Now I can combine it as it being my career as well. So I guess that's basically my story. Yeah, that's really cool. So At what age did you go to the sports school? Because in Australia, we do have sports schools as well. And badminton isn't that big in Australia, probably the same as Belgium, right? So there's all the other sports there. So there's like Australian football and cricket and swimming and tennis, right? And they all come to the school together. Then they have their training sessions. Is it similar or was this only for badminton? No, it's actually all sports together or like most of the more famous sports together. And this is at the age of around 12, where you have to change your school. So I think in Australia, it's high school, or if I'm not mistaken. So at the age of 12 until 18 years old, you're staying there. Yeah, cool. So very focused on sports in itself. And obviously for you, badminton was a key highlight of that time period. So I guess if we go back a little bit to when you were six to seven years old, Elias, you said that 
the coach that was coaching your brother, right, was recognized that you were able to do things that older, older players could do. At six to seven-year-old, what are those things? Because when I'm thinking of a six to seven-year-old playing badminton, I'm like, oh, well, what can they know at that age? So what did you know at that point in time where the coach was like, yep, you can actually play badminton? Yeah, well, I think it was also because I was watching a lot of videos from badminton. Because when I saw Linden in that time, Petrigada, Taufik, I wanted to do the tricks they could do. So, for example, I was trying all the time to play the shuttle between my legs to get it behind my back. So sometimes it was working already, which normally the kids like couldn't do yet. Oh, so you could do all the trick shots. <laughs> Actually, I started with the trick shots, I think. More of like playing smashes or something. I was more interested in just doing some trick shots and showing like, look what I can do. Look what I can do, yeah. yeah. Oh, that's cool. So you said about 12 years old, which is, yeah, you're correct, high school here. So how long did you spend? Is it until you're 18 years old that you spend in the sports school? Yeah, exactly. So that's twice a day. Is that five days a week? And then you play competition on the weekend as well? Yeah, it's five days a week. And then in the weekends, we either had like a program to do on Saturday or we had some competitions, tournaments. So I guess after high school, can you tell us a little bit first, before we go into the next question, about how badminton is in Belgium? Because you finish high school, you've been at a sports school, you've been training two times per day, competitions on the weekends. Then where's the normal next step? So is there much in Belgium? Like how big is it in Belgium? That What's the pathway like for you to get to a high level? Yeah, so the normal step would be to go into the senior group. And actually at around 16 years old, it became quite clear that I would join there. I was already going to practice with them every holidays. Once or twice a week, I could join them to see where where I'm at. So the logic way is to go to the seniors and try to make a living out of badminton and try to be an international badminton player. Yeah, so if you were already going to these senior trainings earlier, how was talent identified? Was it you yourself that you're going, okay, I want to take the next step. I'm going to join this senior training. Or does someone from that senior team, the coach, whoever it is, reach out to talent like yourself when when they're younger? It was more the coach. You cannot make the decision for yourself. But I remember I was, I was kind of lucky as well because at some point my practice would be finished and I would still be in the hall and then they would need someone to feed them in a two against one or three against one. And they would ask me like, hey, do you want to help us? So yeah, you're 16 years old. You can join the seniors. You're like jumping out of your chair and you're like, yes, I want to join. <laughs> and then it went to like maybe one practice you can join. Okay, maybe two. And then they felt like I was giving like a good motivation and I was doing my best, giving my 100% every time. So yeah, then it became more and more. Mm -hmm. So after school, after high school, did you end up training with the senior senior team? Yes, I did. But uh, I also moved quite quickly for a few months to Denmark in the former club of Axelsen, Odense. So that was also like a, a big step for me, being 18 years old and moving to another country where badminton is like really famous so suddenly you get like a whole new view on badminton and on how to practice and how to live as a professional how did you know at 18 how did you know that you wanted to go to denmark or go to odense was it your brother who said hey you need to do this because it's so small in belgium you need to see what's out there or 
was it something you always planned or did someone tell you to do that or give you the idea to go and do that at such a young age? Uh, well, the thing was, I spent like a lot of time there during the summer and in holidays, just as a training camp, just to get some other trainings, to get some new information from other places. And every time I went there, I don't know if it was lucky or yeah, I don't know, but every time I went there, I did great on tournaments and I was getting great results. So maybe it was also a little bit in my head, like if I practice there, I'm doing better. So yeah, then I went there again before the European juniors under 19. And then uh, I made some great results there. I beat some good players who are now in top 50 in the world. So then the choice was made quite quickly. Like, okay, I'm doing this. This will be the best for my career. And if it doesn't work out, yeah, then I just move back. But why not try it? Yeah, I'm sure it was a good decision at the time. And I think we should explore that a little bit more about your time in Denmark and how that compares to uh, Belgium and the training that you get there. But before we do that, I'm just curious. I know you spent a lot of your early days playing badminton. You went to a sports school to play badminton as well. But outside of the badminton world, how do Belgian people perceive badminton? Because I know one of your goals is to make badminton popular and famous. When you were at the sports school, how were your peers like when they thought of you as, you know, Elias, the badminton guy? Yeah, I guess like the first reaction is always like, oh, I'm good at it and I can beat you. Of course, you're like trying to stay humble and you're like, yeah, I'm sorry. I don't think that is going to happen. I practice like two times a day. And then they say, yeah, but I, I'm playing in my garden. So I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Typical response. So, <laughs> Typical response, exactly. So that's kind of frustrating as well. Like I can take the joke, no problem. But I also want people to know like, okay, this is a serious sport. This is something like you have to work hard for. And now with Liana Tang going to three Olympics, now that we say badminton, I would say 50% out of the time they would say her name. So I think that's a good start. Yeah, definitely. With the other 50%, would they say your name or Yuhan's name? <laughs> <laughs> In the 50%, I would say they would say brother and sister Liana and Yuhan. Yeah. And the other 50%, I think they would say it's a garden uh, sport okay. or something. Yeah. <laughs> maybe you're one percent or two percent or five yeah let's hope so <laughs> <laughs> okay so at the moment now i know of course it's been difficult with all the world changes but let's just say after you decided to move to denmark what was your training like how much were you playing international tournaments and and did you stay in denmark most of the time or were you always back and forth between denmark and belgium i would say i was there around three weeks and then i would come home maybe for a few days because still I was 18 years old and actually missing my family as well from time to time. So, so three weeks, then a few days back. And then in between, I would still play just the normal international tournaments because I just started at the senior level. So yeah, I guess it was a more like travel between Denmark and tournaments and sometimes being home instead of like Denmark and home. And I guess before we, we jumped onto this podcast, you did mention that you had to go home for knee surgery. So what, what part of that journey to Denmark was it? So yeah, after like six, seven, eight months, suddenly on practice, I went through my knee and immediately I had a thought like, okay, this doesn't seem so good. So I had my car in Denmark. So I drove home, which is around eight hours. And then... Quite quickly, they discovered like, okay, you need surgery. 
So at that moment, it's like everything falls apart. You're like building onto something, you're investing yourself, you're away from home, and suddenly you have to come back to Belgium and you're in a hospital bed waiting to get a surgery. I think this is like a really, really big setback. Yeah. What age did this did this happen? Was that when you were 19 then? Yeah, at the end of 18, 19, yeah. Yeah. So what has the road looked like since that surgery in terms of your rehab and then getting back into training and then playing professionally again? Yeah, so at that moment, I was back in Belgium and uh, working on my comeback with the physios here. Then I realized also like, look, I like my life in Belgium. I'm also happy here. And at that moment, I saw that the other federation in Belgium, so not the Dutch speaking part, but the French speaking part, was taking uh, Indra Bagus as a new trainer, as a new head coach. And yeah, I went to talk with them and I was thinking they, they had, a, had a good view on the future. So after that, I joined his practice. There was also Lianetan and Maxime Morales at that moment. So I guess we had a really good setup, especially for being a small country as Belgium. Now, just a quick word from our sponsors. The Badminton Podcast is brought to you by Volant. Volant was first born out of our frustration with the confusing, bright and unsightly clothes and equipment that we saw in the badminton world. But now it's so much more than that. Our mission is to accelerate the growth of badminton by providing players with products that enhance their love for the sport. All in all, it's high quality gear that makes you look and feel great on and off the court. So make sure you check us out at volantbadminton.com and follow us on our socials at volantbadminton. Just to go back to the federation piece, Elias, I'm not sure, I guess myself and many other badminton players in the community might not be that familiar with Belgium. I guess, firstly, why is there two federations? Obviously, there's one Dutch, one French, but why is there two? And, and how do they all fit within the badminton sort of structure over there? Yeah, it's not only badminton, it's just like political. Overall, in the country, we have two parts. We're still one country. We've got two parts, which makes it very hard, especially for a country like Belgium, where you already don't have so many players and then you're splitting them up into two. So, yeah. It's hard because I think if you put the groups together and you've got more coaches, more budgets, more players, which would make more sense, I think so. So how about for team selections, like European teams and things like that? Is it selected from the whole cohort then? Yeah, so then the the two coaches get together and I think they have long meetings (laughs) every time, but they also just look at the world ranking who is highest at that moment and they just take the highest one. Because you cannot really say like, yeah, but my guy has been doing well on practice because, yeah, everybody will say that, you know. Yeah, that is a bit unfortunate that it's so segregated, right? Because you need to use all the resources that you have because there's not that many of them. Yeah, so that's really interesting. And I guess from a, this is a little bit outside of badminton, do you speak, how many languages do you speak? Because if you go to one border or one side, you speak a different language, right? So where are you and then what do you speak? So my main language is Dutch, like in the Netherlands. I can speak French as well, and I can speak English. We both have to learn them at school. And I actually really enjoy that I can 
talk so many languages, especially being on like the international tournaments, you can talk with the French players, with all the other players in English. So for me, it's a big advantage, actually. I wish I could speak that many languages. I'm very... <laughs> I'm definitely <laughs> jealous as well. <laughs> because they're so distinctly different languages from my perspective anyway, so that's pretty cool. But I guess going back to the federation piece, Elias, with the two federations, I know it sort of sounds like they're quite segregated. Is there any collaboration at all between the two? Not that I know of, actually. They probably have, so I'm probably saying something wrong here. But <laughs> in my point of view, they don't work together that much, I think. So I hate to go back, but when you go to the sports school, right, and then you, if you finish from a sports school, let's just say 18 years old, and you, which way do you go? Is it based on geographical location? So I live here, I go here, or is it a political belief what's it like it would basically be like the club you started like the region that your club is in that's the part where you go so i started in the flemish part but then i changed to the french part <laughs> so that is really complicated because it wasn't because of my club but it was more because of indra bagus arriving and the other players being there so that was the reason that i changed so at the moment now, well, with COVID and everything like that, but at the moment you're based mainly just in Belgium, yes? Yeah? So do you go to Denmark much anymore? Do you play any league matches or club matches or, or do anything like that? Or are you mainly just in Belgium? Uh, well, actually, we went to the Peter Gada Academy like two months ago, which was a great experience because as a kid, I was looking up to him as a hero. <laughs> and then to get practice from him, I was so nervous in the first two practices. And I have a club in Denmark at the moment, but where I'm like listed as reserve because my main club is in France where I play the top 12. Okay, fantastic. And just a question about the Peter Gatter Academy, because of course it, it is great. I know that there's a lot of international players and I guess the one that you might hear about the most is Brian Yang from Canada who was there and he's made some really good results recently. So obviously, it's is it ladies singles as well as men singles or only men singles? And what's it like there? Is it how is it different to say the Belgium Federation or the other training you've experienced? I was actually there when Brian was there. We were practicing together daily. For me, the maybe the biggest difference is just that you have a group of ten players, for example, which are at a high level and which have the same focus. So you keep just pushing each other to another level. If you see the other one doing an exercise better than you, or at least I'm like this, I'm really competitive. Then I don't want to give in. Then I will be like, okay, I'll do better than you. So I feel like that's that's the biggest advantage point of bringing international players together. If we take the, the flip side to that, Elias, and, and look at what your training is like in Belgium in comparison, what benefits do you see with what your training is in Belgium versus, say, going to a Peter Gator Academy? Yeah, in Belgium, of course, we have a smaller group. We're like uh, three, four players, and sometimes we take some young ones into the group. So I feel like there is more focus on yourself for the small details, for technical adjustments and all that stuff. And especially somebody who is looking at you during two, three hours in the practice and just full attention on you. And in Denmark, you have more this competitive way of practicing it's more like being on a tournament so maybe the coach can can look a little bit less because there is there is more players so it's normal of course but then again it also has its advantages so it's 
I feel like a mix of both of the worlds is like a very good thing to have. Yeah. I'm always jealous of Europe because Australia is so far from everything, right? I know that it took you eight hours to drive home, but the fact that you can drive to a different country is still very foreign to us, <laughs> completely foreign. So yeah, I guess that balance of the individualized or basically the one-on-one -on -one coaching where say Indra is looking at your technical, right? And then maybe um, Peter Gator doesn't have the time to do that because he's got 10 men singles players he's managing at once. So yes, I think that's a really good combination. Do you find that other players are doing that? Like, I know that Mark Kaljao was there. I know that I know a few different players that were there, but is it a similar setup for those players or do they stay there for a long time or do they do what you do and go back and forth a little bit? I feel like the, the players who are going to the academy now are staying there like much longer especially players outside of Europe. I think they, they set up there to make the travel easier between the tournaments and then go back there. But yeah, I don't see so many players who are like coming, like for example, two weeks and then two weeks home. If I think of one name who was there, it was Joachim Oldorf from Finland. He traveled forth and back is what he told me. And overall, there are no names that come to my mind right now. Yeah, cool. I guess everyone's going to take a little bit differently. So. When we're out, out of this pandemic, then I guess we'll find out whether or not there's going to be players that spend a longer time in these sort of clubs as well. In terms of what Indra has brought to your training, I know we're sort of jumping around here, Elias, but I know we talked about Indra Vagas for a moment. Now, Indra, obviously a very successful player internationally as well, uh, having, I think, four titles, six runners up. What has he brought to your training and your level of badminton? Well, I think he has improved me like physically for sure and mentally because as a coach, he can push me to limits where I didn't even know myself that I could be. Sometimes I can get really annoyed, <laughs> but then maybe two hours later, I know like, okay, yeah, this is just for my good and for bringing me to an, another level. I think he can make a player like the complete package. He's not afraid to say things to you that you might not want to hear at that moment or for sure not want to hear at that moment. But if you reflect on it, like a few days after you're thinking, okay, thank you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I know that tough love and it's hard to hear, but at the end of the day, it's, I remember I was doing a fitness test and the previous Danish coach, his name's Klaus Paulsen. He was in Australia as a national coach. And he said to me, you have to run until you die. And then you have to run one more level. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that's a perfect description of, of how it goes. <laughs> I think we have a, a love-hate relationship for each other. Yeah, yeah. I think some of the best coaches do, right? I always refer to this conversation. I was talking to Brees Levedez, one of my good friends, and he was saying about how he would speak to his coach and sometimes they'll just be swearing at each other and hating each other. But deep down there, there is that love or that, that joint um, want to do, but support each other. But yeah, sometimes it's hard to hear the things that you don't want to hear, right? But I feel like you, you need to have those moments as well, I think. You need to sometimes just lash it out on each other and then shake hands and see you tomorrow and we go back from zero, you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. I think that's really important. And I guess... Having spoken to a lot of other players on the podcast and, of course, when I was competing as well, although that we don't make a lot of money in badminton, 
I'd love to say the podcast makes a lot of money, but we are just trying to get support for it. But it's very rewarding. One, to speak to players like yourself, but when you're on the circuit to meet the different people, you're talking about all the languages you can speak. You can speak to the French players, the, the Dutch players, you can speak English to all the other players. What's the most rewarding thing for you as a badminton player? Yeah, well, like I said, how many people you get to know on the international tour, it's, it's really amazing. Like, I think I can go to every country now and just text friends like, hey, I'm here. Do you want to meet up? Give me a bed to stay. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, like yeah that, maybe yeah. that as well. But the biggest shock was maybe for me was the differences in culture. You start to appreciate much more things in life when you have traveled around the world, especially my first time when I went to Africa. When I came back home, I was like so grateful for the things that I have or the way that we are living here. Or when I'm talking to other players and maybe they don't get so much support, then you come back home, you're thinking, okay, we have got a great life here. So it's more about being grateful as well, because when you talk to the other players, there's so many players who have it more difficult than you. So on the days where you're complaining, you have to think back, yeah, okay, but these players have it this way. These players have it this way. So stop complaining, start working. <laughs> yeah, I think it's great to have that unique cultural perspective and just different perspectives of how people like yourself in different countries you know, try and make it to the top or the high performance badminton level um, or even just just the general general population in the, in the countries and how they live their lives and, and how that compares to the amazing lives that a lot of us get to live all around the world. Now, Elias, we've been talking for a while and it's been really great. And I guess we know kind of your goals for, for Belgium, trying to make badminton a popular sport. And of course, in doing that, you would have to achieve some really, really big goals as a player. So in terms of your goals as a player, well, what does that look like? Well, of course, the main goal would be the, the Olympics. But yeah, at this moment, it's really hard to gain some points in the ranking with uh, COVID and all the tournaments being just full of uh, great players, qualification, everything. After that, you know, there, as a Belgian player, there are many things that like a men's single has, hasn't achieved yet. So I feel like you can make history by doing one or two great results which of course are not the easiest results because we have had Yuan Tan before and he has been doing great. Hats off to him. But, you know, you got to look a little bit further away and try to be better than him. Of course, if you have the same career as him, you have already had achieved something great, like something amazing. But the sport is not well known now. So maybe we need something better. We need something more. And that's what I have in mind. I feel like it's a good goal to work towards. Yeah, let's see how it turns out. Absolutely. And and I guess having role models like Leanne and Johan as well, and then and then seeing, say, Brian, who you've been training with a lot, doing so well, I hope I'm sure that gives you some really good motivation and drive and say, hey, I can actually do this or I can do something special here. And we only need to look as far as Spain, right, with Carolina. Unfortunately, she couldn't join us for the Tokyo Games. But what she's done for the country in badminton, it's, it makes things like this possible when previously maybe someone wouldn't think that was actually possible for someone outside one of the top countries. So we wish you all the very best. Now, before we let you go, there is one question, or two more questions, but this question here is the poll that we've been asking several of our guests. And 
I guess when you talk about when you first started playing badminton when you were six, you wanted to do trick shots. And of course, everyone wants to smash, right? And having a big smash is so important for a lot of different people from a social, from club, even if you just want to just go on court and feed feed for men's singles training two against one or three against one. If you've got a big smash, it's, it's nice to hit it past them all the time. So if we were going to look at the three most important things in your perspective as to what gives the smash more power, what would you say those three things are? I would say a good grip, then a good shoulder movement and a strong forearm. Jeff is uh, typing that away in our poll results and collating. We're just fighting for it. So just uh, recap, that was a, a good grip, a good shoulder rotation, was it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And forearm. Fantastic. So everyone listening, if you want an awesome smash, that is Elias's three key tips. Work on those few things and, and you have a smash like Elias very soon. Now, Elias, I think the second question that Jeff was going to ask you actually was, If we want to follow you on your journey, hitting some of those big goals for Belgium, then how can we follow you? That's on Instagram. I'm mainly active there. That's Elias Bracke, so just my name. Awesome. So we'll pop that in the podcast description for all those listeners wanting to follow Elias on his journey towards the next Olympics. Elias, we are at the end of our podcast and we just want to, I guess from Jeff, myself, the Badminton Podcast, And everybody listening, want to thank you again for coming on to this episode. Thank you very much for having me. I really enjoyed the talk we had today. Thanks, Elias. I will think of you the next time I eat French fries. (laughs) That's great. I learned something new too. (laughs) Thanks, Elias. Thanks, Elias. Thank you. Bye. So from Henry and I at the Badminton Podcast, thanks for tuning in to this episode. If you've enjoyed it or found it useful, Be sure to share it with your family, friends, teammates and someone outside your badminton circle too because with your help, we can show the world how incredible badminton is. To keep up to date with new episodes and who we're interviewing next, make sure you connect with us on Instagram, Facebook and LinkedIn at The Badminton Podcast and on Twitter at The Badminton Pod. Feel free to contact us and ask any questions, give us feedback or request topics for future episodes. We love hearing from you. And remember to check out and shop for your simple and minimalist badminton gear at volantwear.com. Catch you on the next episode. Bye. Bye.